the Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, starring Jerry Springer with Gene Galvin and me, I am Maria Corelli. We are recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience here in Folk School Coffee Parlor of Ludlow, Kentucky. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Judge Jerry! Hey, yeah. <laughs> a little decorum, please. Yeah, we not a lot, just a little. <laughs> you got your gavel, Jerry. I know. Thanks to you guys, you gave me this. You, you, this. We fashioned it from our. Own I think that was this is a promotion used for at the, the at Supreme Court in the in Kentucky in the 1800s or something. No. A beautiful antique wooden yeah. gavel. This is a promotion for the plastics. Does it have three three dollars and ninety five cents right there? Yeah, exactly. three ninety five. We forgot to rub that off. But it's yeah. on sale. Yeah. On sale, yeah. In fact, hey, I think you probably stole this. We are. We had last week. Uh, Amy Alvey on. Yes. And boy, she was good. Phenomenal. And we got her back. We got her. Yep. yep. Brought her back. Quick story. Well, she lives in a van. Oh, no. It's so wonderful. all she had to do was turn the van she, around. She was, <laughs> what the heck is such a big deal? She was telling us about uh, van life. And it, but listen, damn it. Jerry, what? do we still have that production company organized in LLC <laughs> where we, we pitched a show called Celebrity Substitute? To MTV. Right. You were on, on a conference call over the phone along yes. with Lewis Beck. I was there in person, and we pitched this show. I swear to God, in the middle of the afternoon at MTV, and I sent them like four days before this little teaser, and they, they never heard of me. And they called me on my cell and said, how soon can you get to New York? <laughs> I said, I don't know, like maybe tomorrow? And they said, well, <laughs> Thursday would be soon enough. Yeah. I go... And we pitched Celebrity Substitute. Maria, tell me if this isn't a great show. You would get to see B-list celebrities substitute teaching well, in schools around the country. <laughs> so you'd have like, uh, ah. what's that girl from the, uh, the the show about California? Heidi, what's her name? Some B-list. So she'd be, well, that, no. there would be a good one. That's substitute a. teaching in uh, Detroit. Mm. And Snoop Dogg would be at Ursuline Academy in Cincinnati, an all-girls school. <laughs> is this, this would be? Is this real? Oh, this was real. Actually, yeah. this was real. And we got well, there because attention. Gene's a teacher, or not just a teacher, but also an educator. And uh, yeah, that would have been. We put a team together, yeah. and we were prepared to find the celebrities, find the schools, mm. uh, uh, show them why it would be in their interest. I'm 100 percent sure. I was a uh, adjunct professor at Xavier University at the time. Got some fe fellow professors from education who joined the team to put this together. And MTV took an interest in it. And then after a month or two, which is what they do with most shows, they'll say, "Now nah, we're going to pass." So they didn't do it. Did and they then, do uh, any filming or anything? We didn't get to that point. Oh. That would have been the next step. And we mm. even talked about making a pilot. But this is why I brought this up. Amy Alvey told us last week when she was on the show about life in the van of climbers. She's a rock climber. Mm -hmm. So rock climbers, off, maybe you would say typically the serious ones, who they're just so obsessed with climbing that they have not much money. She does, because she travels around and performs. She's a singer-songwriter. Yeah. She's loaded. Maria, you know that. Yeah. You're one, too. Listen to this idea, though. Loaded. Yeah. Listen to this idea. You know, there are TV shows on right now. I watch a lot of television. I do not have much of a life. And there are shows about, get it, tiny houses. 
their shows of the audience is yeah. nodding. Yes, tiny houses mm. where people live in 400 square feet. Mm-hmm. A show about people who live in a van. Yes. Mm. I swear to God, I'm going to pitch that tomorrow to somebody. Can Amy be one of yeah, the? You, yes, you know she's the pilot. Amy, we have Amy on mic right here now. She oh. could be on the show singing a little bit later. I swear to God, I'm going to make a big old. What's it called, Amy? Van? What you call it? Van life. Van life, and is there Hashtag like is there even? That's a thing you're no, saying. That's, that's a thing. thing. Van Jer- life. Jerry, do you, do you? I have guess a there'll be less time for you then to produce this podcast. Well. <laughs> There are 24 hours a day, and there are eight days a week. I'm sure I can fit it yeah, in. Yeah. Hey, um, but that... <laughs> that is a good idea. Is, that would be it. That, would that be actually could idea. be a good TV yeah, show to watch, because would. you would get to see climbing as well as mm. how the hell do you live in a van while you're a climber and free solo? How do you live in a van, period? Period, I hear you. I mean, Jay, some well, people have to live in Amy's a van. Amy's is parked right down the street here, so... The you can do it. Yes. I mean, do you have a hashtag, Jerry? Yeah, Jerry needs a hashtag. Hashtag jet life. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. I Jerry had ha- I had hash hashtag. browns this morning. <laughs> <laughs> with two, I don't know anything about hash. But I still use a flip phone. What do I know about a hashtag? It's like Jerry. the pound sign. <laughs> oh, you, you live in a van. I've got a flip phone. Jerry there is you holding go. up. She. I don't know because most people listening to this obviously can't see it, and. Uh, you really raised your eyebrows when you saw my phone. You were <laughs> legitimately Amy shocked. Amy raised just, her eyebrows. I never eyebrows. pegged you for a flip phone guy, Jerry. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, I'm there a flip it is, phone Jerry guy. Springer. <laughs> Hang him with a flip phone. Uh, actually, one thing just to throw yeah, yeah. in, because we talked a little before the show. We were talking, you were warming up, and I listened to your voice, and it's a beautiful voice. And it was a real clear uh, voice, and so I was thinking of some singers, and then you said... You know, a lot of people sometimes, or people have come up to you and said, do you look like Linda Ronson? And then I looked at you and, yeah. She does look like yes. Linda Ronson. Yeah. <laughs> well, and here's it. Looks like Linda Ronson when she was well, yeah, 22 not, years not. old, yeah, which yeah, is what sure. she is yeah, probably. of course. <laughs> and then it struck me that I, I, I had, you know, like a celebrity kind of crush. In other words, not me being a celebrity, but, you know, you, you see someone... <laughs> you know, some star you like and say, oh, wow, Linda Ronstadt. So when I was mayor of Cincinnati, God's truth, uh, I had promised during the campaign that I would bring rock and roll to Cincinnati because it was a very, very conservative city at the time. And people thought, you bring rock and roll here, we're going to have drugs and everything else. (laughs) And we had Riverfront Stadium at the time where the Reds and the Bengals played. But 250 days a year, it was empty and the city owned it the city along with the county. And so why don't we use it to make some money? So I said, we're going to have Cincinnati's first ever outdoor rock concert in the summer of 1978. So I, and then I'm thinking, because I used to do this, give it, I wanted to meet celebrities, so I gave out keys to the city, to celebrities. I would call them and say, if you come to Cincinnati and do a concert, we'll give you a key to the city. Sort of like this plastic gavel, the key to gay people. (laughs) And that's how I got to meet Bob Dylan, Dolly Parton, just a whole bunch of... Well, Linda Ronstadt. Nice. So I call Linda Ronstadt's agent and say, it'd be great if she could come to host Cincinnati's first ever outdoor concert. And by the way, at the concert, we had 50,000 people packed Riverfront Stadium on August 16th, 1978. You can look it up. Linda Ronstadt calls back or gets back through the and, and says, 
She would love to do it. She was trying to work out the dates. The dates didn't work, she says, but I can get you the Eagles. And so ah. we, because she was friends with uh, Glenn Fry, et cetera. And so we, got, we had the Eagles, Eddie Money, and the Steve Miller Band. So I never got, but Linda Ronson did come on another occasion, and I gave her a key to the city. And now she's here again tonight. And, and you came back. <laughs> <clears throat> I finally, finally, but I don't have a key for you, but you can have this guy. Oh, <laughs> oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't take that. <laughs> Do you ever notice in life there are occasional moments that occur that you can't plan for, you can't orchestrate them, but when they happen, they're very powerful, and probably you never forget them in your life. And I know right. you've talked about one when you were six years old or so? Five years old. Yeah. Five oh, years old, yes. floating into the harbor of New York, coming from England, escaping from Nazism in uh, Germany, right? Yeah. Germany. Yeah. yeah. And you go up on the deck, you see the Statue of Liberty, you ask your mother, what, what does she say? And as we're sailing into the New York Harbor, they, she wakes me up, we all go on top of the deck, it's, we're going right by the um, Statue of Liberty there, and there are 2,000 people on the top deck, and it's freezing cold because it's January 24th, 1949, everyone's shivering, but quiet. It's total silence, and they're staring at the statue, which was a five-year-old. Of course, I didn't know what that was. And I had, my mother told me in later years that I'd asked her, what does it mean? And she said in the German she spoke at the time, Ein Tag alles. One day it'll mean everything. And I'm living proof that that Statue of Liberty does mean everything because I've had this privileged life uh, going from extermination of my family in the Holocaust to the life I live today. So I know America can work. So when I get really you know, yeah. caught up in these political rants I do about how all of a sudden we seem to have a government that's moving against the multiculturalism, is moving against immigrants. It's just, it's, you know... A, comes it, from it, a real basic... Yeah, it, come, it, it gets to my core. I mean, that's the yeah, reason America exists, I would argue. And uh, so I think we need to fight that all and the time. When you say that that, that for you, because I've heard you, well, I've seen you out on the stump when you flirted with running for Senate and governor in Ohio, some pretty big races. <clears throat> you've talked, you've used that as a, as a theme of a speech yeah. on Talk Alice. Yeah. And that was one of those moments that clearly, well, obviously impacted you from the age of five for the rest of your sure. life. Yep. And uh, I was hiking, I hiked the Camino Trail five or so summers ago a trail that runs from the edge of France to the edge across Spain to the western edge of Spain. And people have been doing it since the Middle Ages, and it's called the Camino Trail. And it has started with some religious implications, uh, but it's become something like the Appalachian Trail. People do it because they love it. And it had one of those moments where there's a town, a medieval town called Ose Breiro, and it's up in the mountains of Spain in the Celtic region close to the west side. And it's a town that if you go there, you go, holy crap, because the buildings are, it's a very small village, not a town, it's a village. And all the buildings are stone. And they've been restored to look like the way they yeah. looked. And at the end of this cobblestone road in this village is a little church. And at the other end is a convent now turned into what's called an albergue, which is a hiker hostel. Yeah. And the Camino hikers stay in those, and that's where typically people stay. But some of the hikers every year do what's called stealth camping, carry a light tent, 
solo tent or a two-person tent. Sometimes there are couples and they'll just sort of sneak into the woods because in Spain on the Camino, it's illegal to camp anywhere other than in a commercial campground. And there are very few of those. So you kind of sneak into the woods or go into a cornfield in the back and you set up a tent and you sleep, leave the next morning, no trace camping and no one knows you were there. I got to this village, climbed up this mountain to the top and I saw a, a youngish couple and they had a tent laid out, not pitched. They just had a laid out drying from the night before. And I said to them, you, you stealth camping. And they spoke English. Yeah. They said, yes, are you? And I said, yeah, I am too. And then where are you going to camp tonight? And I said, I don't know. I'm eyeing that cemetery, that graveyard next to that church. Had some grass, had some headstones. Just looked really cool. I thought that'll be a yeah. good story. So they, they were Lithuanian. She was a dentist. He was a military officer. So we exchanged names and talked a little bit, and I went into the village, and I'm hanging out under a tree, kind of doing a siesta. She appears later with a bag of groceries from this little grocery store, and she said, Gene, you got to come up on that hilltop, pointed to the hill that was the highest spot of this village, and she said, up there we have Lithuania, Poland, Ireland. We need America up there. And I thought that sounds like a cool evening hanging out with those people. And yeah. I said, but I've got it worked out with the Padre to sleep in the cemetery. And I think that's where I'm going to sleep. Short story version. I had dinner and I thought, I think I got to join these people. And I hiked up there. It was illegal. It was a little park. Big sign says in Spanish, time no camping, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there were four or five tents laid out. And I pitched my tent. <laughs> but check this out. We get around a picnic table, the sun sets, and we start to talk. All, everyone spoke English. It's the international language of commerce. And somebody in that group started to talk about freedom. I don't even know why it came up, but somebody started to talk about freedom. The woman from Poland with a guy from Poland, he's a teacher. She's an opera singer professional opera singer yeah. hiking the Camino Trail. And she tells us about this moment of silence every year in Poland. I looked it up when I got back. It's true. It tracks back to the World War II and the occupation of Poland by the right. Nazis. The they commemorate there. some event in that history where Poland at 5 p.m. stops. Buses stop. Cars stop in streets. Merchants stop talking. They're all going on their watch at yeah. 5 p.m. and nobody says a word for a minute. And then that minute passes and Poland goes back to remember. life. Yeah, wow. She then said, may I sing a song? We're like, yeah, sing a song to her, an opera singer. And she sang this song in Polish and it was powerful. That makes the kid from Ireland pick up a fiddle yeah. Sean from Ireland, who was hiking the Camino that season, was a fiddler, Irish fiddler. And he played some song that related to the Irish struggle to throw off the yokes of England. Right. Then the guy from Lithuania, the officer, says, may I play something? And he brings up a patriotic song from Lithuania and plays that. I then am sitting there thinking... And it's like the spirit is moving you. Yeah. Everybody talking about freedom from all these countries. So I looked up and saw the Big Dipper. And as a backpacker, I know that if you look off the 
backside of the Big Dipper and point straight down as a North Star. Right. And that's how you navigate if you're out to sea or if you're hiking. Or I explained to them about the Underground Railroad. They had not heard of the Underground Railroad. That's they knew about cool. slavery yeah. in America. Yeah. But the song, Follow the Drinking Gourd, I didn't sing it. I don't know why the hell I didn't, because I'm not yeah. afraid to sing it, and I yeah. know it, and I didn't have a stringed instrument. Yeah. Next time I go on the trail, I'm taking one. And everybody talked about freedom, and it's like a primordial core yeah. thing with human yep. beings about freedom. It doesn't matter what country you're from. Yeah. It doesn't matter what year it is. And when we went to sleep, the kid from Ireland had gone over the slightly over the, the ridge and was sitting in what to him probably looked like Heather from Ireland, and yeah. he's playing this dirge on the fiddle. That's how we all went to sleep. That is and wow. that was a moment. Yeah. Every now and yeah. then in life, you get these moments where yeah. you go, wow, I'll never forget that. And you can't you recreate it. You can't recreate that. You yeah. can't say, oh, let's go hike some trail yeah. and take a fiddle and tell stories about freedom. It's too contrived. Yeah. Man. It was spontaneous. It was powerful. And it made me think, and I've talked about this, and I'm going to tear up here. I got to be careful. But we need to go this summer to Mount Rushmore and look up <laughs> and imagine a moment. <laughs> Order in the court. Order in the court. <laughs> imagine. But, Jerry, imagine the moment. When people, when people look up and see, that and was the see longest Jerry Springer's face. <laughs> and here's why I bring it up, because yeah, be Amy Alvey <laughs> and Maria Corelli yes. are rock climbers. Two R's and two L's. Yes, two R's and an E. Two R's, two L's, and an I, and an E's in there somewhere. But they have both committed to me, and I'm the executive producer. Yes, they have committed to me that they will go with you yes. and help you as you hang from harnesses while yeah. they mimic your face yes. with chisels. So that's how this all can happen. Yeah. Jerry, we can't stop this. I've tried to stop. I've tried I'm, to put a stop I to this. I am praying that you stop this. <laughs> I told David Proust, do not play that commercial anymore because it gets everybody stirred up. I get all these phone calls. Yeah. Is it possible? Is it going to happen? Is it like <laughs> El Sebreiro? Is it yeah. about freedom? Yeah. I say, chill. Just calm down. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? How has this friendship lasted 45 years? <laughs> what, what am I thinking? I mean, if we cussed on this, I'd say it's pretty f***ed up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But, but we, we don't, don't talk that way. We don't talk that way, no. Hey, um, yes. how about that? <laughs> yeah, look at that. It's opening, <laughs> day, it's opening day at the Reds tomorrow. How about them Reds? Hey, yeah, uh, well, opening day tomorrow, and yeah. it is, uh, what's for, significant about that, it's always the first and last day that the Reds are in first place. Hey, yeah, but boom, 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 boom. That made me But we Yankee fans. <laughs> yeah, uh, shut this up. This could be a good year for us. I hear you. <laughs> But it, ma it makes me think, uh, how about that? Nothing makes you think. <laughs> no. <laughs> if I could about, find what made you think, yeah, I'd buy it. <laughs> yeah, I'd buy it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about that? How about that electoral college? Yes. How's that working for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's that working for you these you, days? You can get a short yeah, and yeah. put your finger near it. How about yeah. that electoral college? Yeah. There's a seems to be kind of a movement among some of the yeah. Democratic candidates, a number yeah. of which 
is growing, which I think is great, by the way. But anyway, some of them are talking about a scheme to end run the Electoral College because to really change it would take constitutional amendment, which yeah. is a big deal. But what do you think of this whole dump the Electoral College thing? Well, I, I think it's a great idea if we could do it. Um, to, I'm going to go around and get to that. Um, because you just mentioned the difficulty in passing a constitutional amendment to do away with it. Um, and just in case there's someone that doesn't understand this, when you vote for president, um, each state has its own presidential election on election day. So there are 50 separate elections. And whoever wins in that state, whichever candidate gets the most votes in that state, gets all of that state's electoral votes. How many electoral votes does each state have? It's based on the number of congressmen or women that that state has, and there's usually one congressperson for every 625,000 citizens, and plus two senators. That is the total amount of electoral votes that a person has. You add up the congresspeople from that state, for, uh, and then the plus two senators. And then whoever has the most electoral votes gets to be president. As we've seen twice in the last 16 years, twice in the last five presidential elections, the person that got the most votes, you know, from the people of America didn't get to be president because they didn't have the most electoral votes. So basically twice in the last 16 years, America has a president the people didn't want, the people didn't vote for. And in this latest election, Trump losing by three million votes, um, never in history has there been such a landslide where the loser, losing in a landslide, still gets to be president. And that's why we have what you know many people think is an illegitimate president. Technically, he's the president, but certainly not the will of the American people. By three million votes, they chose Hillary. Nevertheless, so you change this system, is what uh, a number of the candidates are talking about now. And it reminds me, first of all, it's obviously very difficult to do. Why? Since 1788, you know, the year the, it was, the Constitution was finally was drawn up, there have been 11,000 amendments introduced and only 27 passed. We only have 27 amendments to the Constitution uh, in 240 years. Here's a little side story to it. There are only two people in American history that have authored more than one constitutional amendment. It's pretty interesting. Only two people. One, James Madison, who authored the Bill of Rights. And the other is a senator who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. Didn't get a lot of publicity, but when you think of a United States senator that when I tell you what he did has had more impact on what America is today in terms of its government 
It's shocking. It should have been front page headlines. It probably was in Indiana. But Birch Bayh wrote the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which was the succession of the presidency. This was after John Kennedy was assassinated. He authored that amendment, which is what we have today. And the 26th Amendment, which was to lower the voting age to 18. Those are the two amendments that he authored. Uh, a side story to that is that I probably am in Cincinnati politics because of Senator Birch Bayh and this amendment. I had just come to Cincinnati. I was heading up this campaign only because I was the oldest one at the meeting when they got organized to lower the voting age. This was in 1969 to place it on the ballot. And the Democratic Party was having their big fundraising dinner in October of that year, right before the election. And they invited me. They said, you can have two minutes to address this big dinner and give your pitch for why people should vote for what was on the ballot to lower the voting age at that time to 19. It was 21, and we wanted to lower the voting age. And so I gave a two-minute speech. It went over well. And Birch Bayh was the main speaker at that dinner. After the dinner, Birch Bayh came over to me, and you remember Sako Wifi, who then was co-chairman of the Democratic Party, they brought me up to a room to talk to me about who, who I was and you know, what you ought to get interested in the political party and run for office and all that. That was Birch Bayh. I now decide to run for Congress. Five days later, I get called up into the Army Reserve and sent to Fort Knox. While I'm at Fort Knox doing my basic training, this is January of 1970, I get called up by the commanding general of Fort Knox into the office, and I figured, oh my God, am I in trouble? I hadn't told anyone I was running for Congress because Congress you know, was in charge of the military budget, and if they knew I was an anti-war candidate, I would get in a lot of trouble, so I just didn't tell anyone, and they didn't know I was a new kid in town. Birch Bayh was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's holding hearings before the United States Senate on the constitutional amendment to lower the voting age to 18. And he, remembering the speech, I was invited. They flew me to Washington to testify at the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I testified that day with Senator Kennedy and Allard Lowenstein, who was a attorney at the time, but a big uh, liberal leader. And so I testified to lower the voting age, to basically birch by got me into Cincinnati politics and all the horrible things that happened since. He not only wrote the 25th Amendment, the 26th Amendment, he also authored Title IX, which is now part of our way of life here in America, which is gives women equal rights in education, college sports, high school sports. The same amount of money has to be invested for women students as well as male students. Title IX is it. He authored that. He authored the Equal Rights Amendment. It hasn't passed, 
but he's the person who wrote it. And now we get to the issue that Gene asked me about. He also authored a constitutional amendment to disband, to abolish the Electoral College and instead have a president elected simply by a popular vote of the people. It passed the House in 1969. It failed in the Senate because it didn't get the two-thirds, and President Richard Nixon was for it. He endorsed it, but it didn't pass. And until the day he died a couple of weeks ago, he was still pushing as a retired senator for that amendment. So his impact, 25th Amendment, the 26th Amendment, Title IX, Equal Rights Amendment for the Women, doing away with the Electoral College. What a career. What a substantive career that, frankly, you never hear in a conversation. You just quietly meld it into the woodwork. Well, what's the argument for doing away with the Electoral College? Those who want to say, save it say, well, it's original intent. Our founding fathers wanted the Electoral College, not the popular vote. First of all, who cares what the founding fathers wanted at that time? That's, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm saying that the founding fathers at that time wrote a constitution which didn't let women vote, which didn't let blacks vote, that condoned slavery. Everything that has happened in our constitution in the 240 years since those founding fathers has expanded the voting base has expanded voting rights, giving more and more people access to the ballot box. That's been American history. Every movement has moved to expanding the American dream, not reducing it. So what their original intent was is absurd for us to be concerned about that. Is that really what you want to go back to? Shall we now say no more votes for women? No more votes for blacks? All right. The second thing is the reason that that was put in there, the Electoral College, so that one, they were afraid of, quote, mob rule. What if the not white, wealthy landowners, what if the regular people wanted to vote? Those dirty people, we don't want them voting. They're crazy. They don't know anything. They're the mob. Literally, if you read in the Federalist Papers, they talk about mob rule. So they didn't want the rest of the people voting. The South, even today, Southern politicians, the Southern states, don't want to do away with the Electoral College. Not, as you would think, because there are a lot of smaller states that are in the South, and therefore they wouldn't have as much clout. What they're most concerned of is if you have a presidential election where it's just the popular vote, that law would result in everyone being able to come to the polls and voting for president. But many of the southern states have restrictions, make it difficult for minorities to vote. Vote is suppression. And they don't want those laws in the southern states erased so people can vote for president. They're fearful of that, so they fight the idea. Because if you just say, shouldn't we have an election where 
whoever the people want gets to be president? I mean, it just sounds so obviously right. Why do they fight that? Well, that's, that's the reason they fight it. And then you hear the argument, well, if you didn't have the Electoral College, the candidates would never pay attention to the small states. They'd only campaign in the big states where most people live. Well, first of all, that's not true. The candidates don't go to California. The candidates don't go to New York because those aren't close elections. You know, those aren't the states where you don't know what's going to happen, such as maybe Florida and Ohio. And so the candidates don't campaign there at all. They raise money there, but they don't campaign there. In fact, they're more likely to campaign in a state in the middle of the country, which is a telltale state, which will decide who gets the electoral vote, but not necessarily small states. In other words, a state that is clearly Republican, they don't go to. And a state that is clearly Democrat, they don't go to. So that's a ridiculous argument to say we got to keep the Electoral College, otherwise the smaller states won't have candidates there and only the big states will. That's shown to be not true. And if you're concerned about local issues that a presidential candidate won't pay attention to some of these local concerns in rural communities, wait a second. Every local community has a congressperson. Every state has two senators. Everyone gets the exact same representation. Every local community has either a mayor or a county commission or whatever. Every community has political representation. There is only one office in America which represents the whole country, where everybody should get one person, one vote. The only office. And it is the only office in our society where the person who gets the most votes isn't the winner. Think about it. You would never set up a system where whoever gets the second most votes will be mayor or congressperson or senator. We just think that's why you have an election. A third grader that has a class election for the class president knows that whoever gets the most votes is the class president. Why can't we figure that out for the presidency? There's one alternative to it, which I think Gene was referring to, because it's so hard to get a constitutional amendment. There is what they call the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Now, this is a way around having to go through the whole constitutional amendment prospect. There are so far 11 states plus the District of Columbia that have passed legislation which says that whichever candidate for president gets the most popular votes nationwide, all of their state's electoral votes will go to that person, no matter how he or she did in, the, in that state. So if Ohio has 19 electoral votes or 21 electoral votes with the two senators, that means it doesn't matter who wins in Ohio— but whoever wins the national popular vote, all 21 will go to that. As I said, 11 states and the District of Columbia have already signed on, but it will only take effect if enough states pass this legislation, which will come to 270 electoral votes to elect a president. In other words, no state is going to be hanging out there alone. 
if right now with those 11 states and the District of Columbia, we have 181 electoral votes, if you add up all those states' electoral votes, but you got to get to 270. So we still need a few more states to get to 270. As soon as enough states sign on that you got 270 electoral votes with those states, then the legislation that they passed in their respective states will take effect. And that means whoever wins the popular vote, those states will give all their electoral votes to that person and that person will be president. That is the way around the constitutional amendment, which the Republicans won't ever permit to pass because you need two-thirds of a vote in the Senate to do that, and three-fourths then of the state legislatures. So that's what people are working on now. It's still difficult, but you have to start concentrating on state legislative races, and you have to start concentrating on who the governor is, because if the states could get this legislation passed, that would be a way that finally America can have a system where the presidential candidate who gets the most votes will actually be the President of the United States. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if uh, we could turn our attention to our musical guest, we're having uh, Amy Alvey back on the podcast this week. Yeah. Yeah. One half half of the duo, Hoot and Holler. Uh, It is lovely to have you back. Are you Hoot or Holler? (laughs) Oh, man. I wake up every day and ask myself that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amy, tell us about uh, the song that you're going to play. Well, I wrote it yesterday. It's not even 24 hours old yet. It's just a little little baby song. Um, (laughs) I wrote it in your apartment. Uh, I was was pretty sick yesterday. I mean, I'm still kind of... What's wrong with her apartment? No, no, nothing's wrong with her apartment. Yeah, and uh, I don't know what else to say about it. I guess it's about just kind of knowing your worth as you enter into a, a new prospect, a new relationship. Um, yeah, should I just go for it? Yeah. yeah. Be gentle, guys. Like I said, it's just, it's just brand new. Door, you're lucky. I know my own. Way. 
turn out to be nothing at all We might fall apart without any warning I'm not afraid of some little pain I won't hide my face to the dawn of the new morning All the things I've still yet to learn My man is rooting for the home team And we're each at the helm Hand in hand together we'll learn It could turn out we have nothing at all We might fall apart without any warning I'm not afraid get sick more often <laughs> no that yeah but i've got like my lyric lyrics still out here on the ground hence why i got a little lost in that one but that's how new it is i don't even have all the words up that's really oh, cool. that was beautiful i, I appreciate God, you guys letting line. me do that yeah. for you you know, love what, it thank you what's kind of fun is and we've talked to you about this too maria is a process of songwriting and mm -hmm. it's fun to watch it literally happening and given you wrote that a day before mm-hmm you and I chatted before the show, and you were trained at Berkeley School of Music in Boston? That's right, yeah. And that is, uh, that's a pretty big deal school in the music field. Would you agree? Yeah. And uh, I, I went for, like, classical violin performance was what I was doing when I first started, but then that's where I got into folk music, old-time, bluegrass. Um, that's where I, like, learned about harmony, and that's where I started writing songs. I had never really written any songs before that kind of interesting people look at uh, a folk singer or pop singer any kind of singer blues singer and you wonder well wonder where they came from and mm -hmm. some people came the route you came mm -hmm. which is a classical training mm -hmm. and probably as a kid where'd you grow up did you grow up in california southern california yep yeah orange county and and you play violin as a young kid uh yeah, we Suzuki had Suzuki or I never did Suzuki. There was there we just had like a really strong uh, you know, music program. It's a pretty affluent area and you know, upper middle class. So um, yeah, the music programs were always really good and, and I started it was like everyone starts playing recorder when they're in third grade and then you kinda get introduced to the violin in fourth grade and, and so I don't know, I just kind of took to it naturally. I liked practicing, but I also, I never had private lessons until I went to Berkeley. I, in, in some huh. senses, I was self-taught, self-motivated. Yeah, um, that's very cool. Yeah. That's, that's remarkable. That song was just great. Yeah, oh. so was it Linda Ronstadt? Was that Linda Ronstadt? <laughs> yeah, Ronstadt oh, yeah. One more time, Linda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Linda's going to be calling you, Jerry. No. <laughs> Indeed not. Do you think she listens to this podcast? Well, well, guess what? We yeah. Have 
Who, who do we have on, David? Her. Michael Ronstadt and Petey Ronstadt are both her nephews. <laughs> nephews, yeah. <laughs> wow. And her brother, who at the time was ill, and I, I, to be honest, I don't know how that came out, but we were praying for him at the time. Yeah. But he was well, going to be part of that, but couldn't. That was her brother. Yeah. Uh. So there is sort of a Ronstadt connection that had mm. nothing to do with the great story Jerry told. That's <laughs> a good story. Yeah. Anyway. Amy, we appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you yeah. for thank you, and thanks to the board. folk school. I love this spot. Oh. I love being here. Oh, I should mention we're doing a. Uh, I'll be in town on May thirteenth. Hoot and Holler is doing a house concert at uh, Joe Mascheret's house from Joe's Truck Stop. So you can find out about that on hootandhollermusic.com or Facebook and all that. And awesome. let me just say one last thing. I want to get this uh, on the recording. And I'm, I'm thinking with my legal mind, there will be a pitch made for a show called Van Life. Van Life. Is it hashtag Van Life? Hashtag Van Life. And Amy Alvey will be the pilot edition. The show will be about her, and it will follow her probably down to Red River Gorge. So where she'll sleep in her van and get, and, and because the show is going to be about how you live in a van and why you live in a van, well, why and people do it. I, I will say, you know, I think Jerry was like, how do you live in a van? I mean, I think the way it really works out is that you're, you live in the van, but you're not really, you're not li- living in it to be in it 24 right. seven. You're, right. you know, the whole point is to like get outside. You know, I don't think anybody yeah. lives in a van to stay in the van. Got it. <laughs> yeah. It's utilitarian. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, will you do Down by the Riverside for us and let Jerry s- sing one? I would just Please. love nothing more. Would, would you, you, Jerry? <laughs> All right. All right, Linda. Key of C, folks. I'm going to lay down my heavy load down by the riverside. Down by the riverside. Recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song, and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com.